Talk Money is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <coughs> For updates, further breakdowns, and past episodes of this podcast, sign up at thetalkmoney.com. If you enjoy our podcast, help us get the word out. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to help us reach more ears. And now you can sign up for our newsletter, where we curate the best money topics of the week from across the internet. It's quick, informative, and most importantly, fun. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com slash newsletter. Hey everyone, Mesh here. Welcome back to Talk Money Season 3, where we're digging into a variety of industries to see how they've been warped and redefined by the pandemic. If you're a person living in a city or in a suburb, or hell, if you're a person, period, you've probably looked around and considered your home in a new light. For a lot of folks, what used to be a crash pad is now an office, a restaurant, a school, a gym. For some, large houses have become claustrophobic. Whether you live in a city or on a farm, your values inevitably change when you spend a year inside. I know mine have. We spent a few unexpected months in Florida. Real estate is a complicated beast. Whether you rent, own, flip, or invest, the process has only become more competitive since COVID entered the picture. But for many, it's a necessary step. So today, we're looking for a house. I'm masked up and driving around Washington, D.C. with Bilal Baloch, an old friend of mine. It's my first time seeing him since last March. He and his family have been living in Abu Dhabi, and this is his first trip back to the States in COVID times. So Bilal, right now we're in a car. Mm-hmm. Where are we going and what are we doing? So we're going to Northwest DC to see our first house of the day. Uh, it's an open house. We're mainly looking today at three to four bedroom places. Bilal and his wife lived in DC for a handful of years. They wanted to move back for a while and were planning their return with their new daughter in tow. An international move is overwhelming under normal circumstances. But with new travel restrictions and crazy demand for comfortably sized homes, Bilal had to fly to DC and start looking at houses. A lot of houses. Over the course of the last eight weeks, virtually I've seen about 220. And in person, I've seen about two dozen. Understandably, Bilal didn't know what he was getting into. He'd heard the pandemic had spurred people to move from cities to quieter, greener pastures. But he didn't know what to expect when it came to his old stomping ground. So with regards to the market, yes, I absolutely thought that the pandemic would help. I thought people would be less willing to pull the trigger on an expensive purchase. Um, That certainly hasn't been borne out. You know, people are looking to move from condos into bigger homes because they want more space, because they're anticipating working from home. And I wouldn't have thought about space for a home office, for example, being a necessity. I would have seen that as a luxury. Bilal's search in DC was just beginning, and he could already see it would be a challenge. We'll come back to him later. Speaking of working from home, while many of us have been stuck on the couch or at the dining table with laptops, trying our best to tune out our families, business owners are grappling with a mass exodus from offices. Instead of renewing leases in city centers, they're considering alternatives and often getting more bang for their buck. To me, if you said, Tarek, how would you summarize the Catskills real estate market right now? It would be, I put an as-is offer, 20000 above asking, no inspector, sight unseen. That sums up the Catskills real estate market right now. 
Tarek Pertu wears a lot of hats. He runs not one, but two businesses. A tech company called Uncubed and NYC Footy, one of the biggest soccer leagues in New York City. Uncubed was already a remote operation, but the pandemic brought the sports league to a halt. Stuck at home, he daydreamed about a long-held fantasy. We've already had an appetite to leave New York. Not permanently, but we've had an appetite. And with Instagram and everything, like the, the Catskills Upstate movement has been extremely aggressive. So it's in a lot of New Yorkers' headspace, or at least privileged New Yorkers. It's been in their headspace for a long time that, hey, I might have an opportunity to have a place upstate. Tark decided that now was the time to make a move. He'd visited friends upstate years ago and fell under its spell. The region, a woodsy, affordable oasis only a couple of hours north of Manhattan, has a long history of bewitching New Yorkers, tired of high prices and small apartments. For Tarek, it presented a unique business opportunity, too. For the past few years, we've done a festival upstate in the Catskills called the Footy Fest. It was a tournament on real grass. <laughs> that was the big appeal because everyone plays on turf in New York. And it was just this wonderful fall tournament that we would host. And with it, of course, you're renting a place upstate. And so I was chatting with my partners in the soccer league and said, you know, what if we invest in a property upstate that we could actually use ourselves because we like spending time upstate. We could actually host the tournament there if we got the right piece of land. And then when we're not using it, we could rent it out. We could make it an Airbnb thing. And it was like this fantasy idea, but I held on to it. Tark had been casually looking at houses upstate before the pandemic. Then the market turned upside down. Once the pandemic started, any house that I liked, it was gone. And like, it was gone in a week. It was like constantly, it's like, what is going on? Then over time you learn that people are buying these places. It's called sight unseen. They're literally like, hey, that house looks good. Here's my offer. I'm buying it. Like, you don't even want to see it. Don't need to see it. I'm buying it. Tarek wasn't looking to take that kind of chance. He needed to know what he'd be getting into before putting down a chunk of his life savings. He scoured Trulia and eventually got a call from his realtor. He's like, hey, okay, here's the deal. They're only doing two days of viewings. It's this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. That's it. And I was like, I think Saturday's going to be too late. But he's like, well, you have no choice. Tarek patiently waited for Saturday to come. The morning of the showing, he and his wife got in their car and headed north. Over bridges and connections from highway to highway, the sounds of the city faded behind them. Three hours later, they traded asphalt for dirt and wound their car down a long, unpaved driveway. They looked through the windows at the uninterrupted horizon. The car rolled to a stop and they got out. I felt my brain relax a bit. You know, there's not a lot of traffic. There's no honking. The only sound you often hear are birds and at night frogs. A lot of frog sounds at night. Tarek found himself parked on a farm, 30 miles from the nearest town. It wasn't what he'd expected but it was straight from his fantasies. A peaceful pasture, complete with a barn, slightly dated, a stable, in good shape, next to a creek with tons of acreage, perfect for soccer practice. He did a quick walkthrough, just to be sure, but there was no question. So we saw the house. I made a full offer on the drive back home. After a little back and forth and a lot of anxious patience, Tark got the call. They got the farm, but they didn't stop there. Basically, the week of closing, I get a call from my agent who says, hey, you know that one little house that's next to the farm? Are you interested? And it's this, like, cute little old 1800 schoolhouse. It's the only house anywhere near the farm. 
So I desperately tried to get my friends to act on it. I was like calling my friends up like, hey, buy this house. You can be our neighbors. And everyone's like, yeah, it sounds cool. I'll go check it out on Saturday. And I was like, no, you got to buy it within like two days because that's what's happening right now upstate. Like there's houses don't last a week anymore upstate. And I knew this one was going to go. It was just in that price range, very inexpensive. I was like, I got to make an offer on it. Tark and another friend pooled their finances and submitted their offer against three other buyers who hadn't seen the house. Tark increased his offer by $20,000. If their offer was accepted, Tark would go from being a Brooklyn renter to the overseer of a mini farm empire in a matter of seven days. And they accepted it, and it was a little bit of a holy shit moment. Like, I, it took me, so I averaged one house per 38 years, and then a few days later, I averaged one house every 19 years. That's the way I was like telling my friends. I'd never owned a home in my life, and then I owned two within like a week. In any other time, Tark's home buying spree would be unusual, even a little insane. Right now, it seems completely reasonable. Right now, it's a free-for-all. Because right now, buyers are like kids in a candy store, and it's really, really hard to focus them on actually making a decision. Realtors are at the center of this mass migration. They're deemed essential workers, and rightfully so. This is New York City realtor Kirsten Jordan. My name is Kirsten Jordan. I am a real estate broker for Compass, and I'm part of the Hudson Advisory Team. Since our interview, Kirsten's moved on to Douglas Element, but she's been right alongside her clients, both buyers and sellers, throughout the pandemic. She's watching the market frenzy up close and trying to keep up. Her data shows her hard evidence of the mood of New York, from fearful immobility to the outright evacuation of the city by the privileged set. It was like a landslide of inventory. We had tons of inventory come on the market over a six-week period from Labor Day until the middle of October. And pricing-wise, there are consistent reductions across the board, definitely. Combine a surplus of inventory, general price cuts, and a burning desire to move somewhere bigger and easier. Turns out, everyone had the same thought. So competitive is the main thing, right? It's a very competitive market. And so, you know, on the one hand, you feel a sense of urgency and rush. On the other hand, it's a set game. And so you have to play it if you want to secure something, certainly in this market. Back in D.C., Bilal and I drive up to the first house on our buying tour. There are three other couples there, wearing masks and trying to smile politely with their eyes. The pressure mounts. We keep our distance. Okay, so we're literally... Three minutes into looking at the first house. Yeah. What do you think? So I'm thinking no already, and this might be the benefit of having seen so many houses by now that your time spent in them begins to narrow because you have the comparative lens and, you know, all the houses you've seen flash before your eyes. Moving on. I've been waiting for the San Francisco real estate market to slow down, thinking, oh, when it does that, then I'll buy. Um, and that, that never came. A down payment in San Francisco could buy me 50% of a house in cities like Portland. If you tuned into our episode about higher education earlier this season, you might remember Dale Stevens. He founded a company called Uncollege in his early 20s as a Teal Fellow, and now works as an executive coach. And until recently, he was a diehard San Franciscan. I lived in San Francisco for almost a decade. It's the city where I came of age. All of my friends lived there in a high enough density that I could walk down the street and bump into them. It had great food and restaurants. I was paying $2,600 a month for a master bedroom with a private bath, which I told myself was worth it because everyone was there. About two weeks into shelter in place, when I realized that all the things that I loved about the city were no longer available, 
I started feeling resentful about the amount I was paying in rent. There are a lot of reasons that cities are suffering right now. The perks that drew residents in in the first place, culture, restaurants, theaters, museums, are all now possible hot zones for infection, if they're open at all. Rents are notoriously expensive in cosmopolitan cities like New York and San Francisco, and you get less space for your dollar. It's pushed longtime city dwellers and recent transplants alike to reconsider what they want out of a home. Dale weighed his options and turned his attention to Portland, a city he'd been interested in even before the pandemic. He had friends there. It wasn't far from San Francisco. He could still drive to his family on the West Coast. And compared to the Bay Area, the housing costs didn't make your head explode. Until everyone else got the idea to move there too. I was surprised at how much demand there was. The second house that I put a bid on over Memorial Day ended up going for $100,000 over asking with eight other bids. It was kind of nuts. Just uh, stories I was used to hearing in San Francisco, not not Portland. Dale had never bought a house before, but between well-publicized low interest rates and a glut of inventory, he knew he was in for a frenzied buying experience. He started making offers in May, and by mid-July, he was closing on his new home in Portland. The fervor for a new home with more space is hitting every city across the country. On the opposite coast, I continued the house hunt in D.C. with my friend Bilal. We parked down the street from a nice colonial home. Four bedrooms, two baths. Our car is the last in a long line of other spectators. So this is the first open house I've been to where there is a line of visitors out onto the street and a few yards off on the block. Um, Pretty crazy. I mean, I was telling you earlier on in the car that uh, just from the pictures and the the deal of the house, uh, this is one that ticks a lot of boxes. So let's see what happens when we go in. How many people are in front of us? Oh, I think about 10. Okay, to be continued. Though Bilal's looking for a house for his family, some people see this time as an opportunity to invest, to buy a house or apartment and use it as a rental property. Rentals run the gamut, from long-term homes for reliable tenants to weekend Airbnbs. If you know what kind of profit you want to make, the risks involved, and the amount of responsibility you're willing to take on, being a landlord can be one of the most lucrative forms of passive income. My name is Sadi Khan, and I'm the founder and CEO of Heracles. And before founding Heracles, I was a product director at at Facebook. And prior to that, I was at Microsoft. Sadi Khan's had a long career in the tech world. He's a businessman through and through, an entrepreneur almost to a fault. When he was thinking about retiring a few years ago, he decided to get deeper into one of his hobbies. No, not golf, not woodworking, not volunteering. He wanted to develop an asset-backed credit card with a credit line that's linked to the equity in your house. The cost of debt is substantively cheaper when it's secured by home equity than almost any other kind of debt that you can get. And so what we're doing is we're bringing it down market and enabling people who'd maybe have five, 10, $15,000 of home equity in their home and enabling people to have a credit card at those really low interest rates backed by smaller lines of home equity. So now he's the CEO of that credit card company. But long-term, he's thinking ahead to a more relaxed retirement. And he has one thing in mind when it comes to low-maintenance investments. I've been excited about real estate for a very long time. And if you look at it from a risk-adjusted basis, real estate is, frankly, the best-performing asset. Saadi isn't looking to flip houses or gentrify neighborhoods or sell land to developers at a markup. He's been buying homes and renting them out since he was working at Microsoft in his early 20s. 
Even though he was living in Seattle, he knew of another hot market where he could invest. So I grew up in Florida, and so I was kind of exposed to the Florida market somewhat. And the real estate market in Florida just looked very prime. And I think a rule of thumb that you'll often hear on the internet and various other places is trying to look for a place that has you know, something like 1% of the price of the home in rent income per month. And at this time, you know, it was closer to like 1.8 or 1.9%. So it was just like really good returns. The first home he bought was in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale. It was a foreclosed property listed for sale online. Saadi decided to buy it, sight unseen, for around $90,000. And I remember that price less than I remember how much money was actually left in my bank account after I bought that home. And I believe it was less than $100 was left in my bank account. Because remember, this was a foreclosed property, so I needed to buy it in cash. I couldn't you know, get a loan for it at that time. Ten years later, Saadi still owns that home. It's worth far more what he paid for it and it generates around $1,700 per month in pure profit. Since then, he's been able to buy a new house with a similar cost-to-rent ratio every 12 to 18 months. It's a slow burn, but he likes the low-risk, low-stress, consistent income he earns from it. To this day, he's never sold any of his properties. Even without a mortgage, maintaining a slew of houses comes at a cost. Savi lives out of state, so he relies on property managers to keep everything running. The good thing about property management companies is that pricing is relatively standard. The bad thing about property management companies is quality is not. The rough rule of thumb for a property management company is that they will generally you know, need about 10% of rent. Do they have handyman? If so, how good are the handyman? Because that can save a lot of money if your property management company has their own handyman versus like not. Um, how organized is the property management company and kind of the continued communication with both tenants and, and yourself? That last part, the reliability of the management company is integral to running a rental portfolio like Saudi. Luckily, he's got it down to a science. In fact, in my early days, I actually hired two different property management companies and split my portfolio into two parts to run like A-B tests to identify the one that I thought was stronger. Um, and then I transitioned my properties to them and they've been going strong for many years now. That's a very... Great product test right, yeah. that you've taken from Facebook and Microsoft to real estate. As steady and conservative as it is, Saudi's real estate system wasn't COVID-proof. In so many cities, renters have fled to less congested areas, driven out by unemployment, fear, or their own rearranged priorities. Apartments sit empty. Rental prices are on a downturn. Kirsten's seen how drastically it's changed in New York. The actual asking rents are down, and then they're adding these incentives to just try to tourniquet the situation. The concept of using months free and other incentives to keep people at a higher rent rate is is twofold. It really is to keep the value of the asset. And secondly, it is also to get people at a higher renewal level. If you're looking to rent in New York right now, there are thousands of vacancies, especially in the high-end market. Those with the resources to wait out the pandemic in less crowded regions left behind their spacious digs and glass towers because they trust that they can return whenever they're ready. Part of that confidence comes from the unique nature of the New York rental market. It's neighborhood specific, but in New York, you do have all sizes of rentals that you can get yourself into. And there's always some level of inventory of those rentals because there's a lot of people who've decided to move to another place for the year and they've given up their rental because they know they can just come back. That assuredness, 
knowing you can get into another rental with the snap of your fingers and a chunk of change on first, last, and security doesn't apply to most cities and towns across the U.S. It's one of the reasons that there's so much transacting going on right now. Lots of people are moving to new areas, and because there are so few rentals to choose from, they're having to buy, sometimes unexpectedly. For those who don't have a down payment saved up, they're stuck in a different way. It does seem that the rental numbers have gone way up in these other places because the same thing always applies, that there's still these people who didn't expect to have to buy, and so they really can't buy, or because of their work situation right now or, you know, employment, they feel like it's not appropriate for them to put down that liquidity. And so then they have you and you're renting and you're overpaying for rent. Many families who moved in 2020 would say that's the price they'll pay for safety. Safety from COVID, small spaces, other people, and whatever else they think they're leaving behind with their old city life. This same cycle happened to New York and to cities 20 years ago after a similarly jarring and impossible event. I think this is very, uh, this is a lot like 9-11. It still feels very, very acute and very reactionary, people's moves. After 9-11, a wave of city dwellers fled to less condensed spaces. The Federal Reserve lowered interest rates, hoping to compel buyers to sign contracts. Commercial real estate suffered as workers felt uneasy about returning to offices in the sky. The hotels, the restaurants, the real estate industry, uh, we're going we're gonna to rebuild. We're not only going to rebuild, we're going to come out of this stronger than we were before. But unlike 9-11, the pandemic doesn't have an endpoint. It might be a while before renters and buyers alike crawl back to the metropolises they once cherished. As a broker, Kirsten remembers a more recent downturn, just as market-shattering and unpredictable. I got into real estate in 2008, right around the time that everything crashed. So I really got to see what it's like to be in a truly down market. It was petrifying. As a new broker, Kirsten learned the trade in emergency mode. She had nothing to compare it to, but she was on a team that was all commission. And she saw the fear among the older agents. For three years, she and her colleagues worked through lowered prices and government incentives. And then just when you thought nothing was going to sell, apartments would start selling again. And the takeaway that I have always remembered from that experience was that it always feels like it's going to be bad forever when we have a crisis and that it's never bad forever. That at some point the tide turns and at some point things start to move. And if you can just hold on for dear life, you'll come out of the other side and probably be in a better place. Inevitably, housing costs will stabilize and rise, just like they did after the stun of 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis wore off. The so-called safety of suburbs is largely imagined anyway. While COVID arrived in cities via international airports and is certainly more transferable among dense crowds, suburbs and rural areas have more distant hospitals with less resources. Not to mention an overall older population. But they have backyards. And for those with the ability to replant their roots easily, that signifies safety. Comfortable isolation is a privilege. From Sadi's point of view, with his Florida rentals filled with tenants, the move from more urban areas to suburban sprawl isn't just a temporary blip. It's made easier by the globalizing nature of the internet. And I think that trend will, frankly, potentially be accelerated by the ability to bring infrastructure out to suburban and rural areas. 
in a more kind of aggressive manner than we have been able to do in the past. Things like the ability to like, you know, DoorDash food in suburban areas changes the dynamics of having to live in an urban area to get access to the best restaurants. Sadi tends to lean towards the futuristic when he predicts how life will change. He thinks autonomous cars will have a huge impact on what we consider a comfortable distance to travel for work. But he also sees how a temporary stay on commutes has shifted our expectations. Like, you know, why are we spending so much time on commutes every day? Why does the average American spend 45 minutes or an hour commuting every day? It's crazy. And if you were to take that away, like, where would you live? And how would you live? That consideration is one of the big draws for my friend Bilal to move to D.C. He remembers his years there fondly. And now that he has a family, it's the place he really wants to be. Not just for work or for convenience, but because it really feels like home. As we toured houses, it became clear that a lot of other people wanted his idea of home too. That realtor was very confident. They're basically doing one open house Mm -hmm. and your offers have to be in it Tuesday. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? I think he's being very honest. I think in a competitive market with a long line of visitors for the open house, I think he knows that people aren't just visiting in vain and that there will be a lot of bids coming in. So having it open for one day uh, makes sense from his perspective. And that house is going to get bid up. The price is going to keep going up. It didn't seem like that was worth what the asking price was. Yeah, I agree. But therein lies the D.C. market currently. And one of the things that's been confusing me a little bit is, you know, why now? Why uh, are prices going up and up here in D.C.? And it's because I think one of the things COVID has done is it's changed what constitutes an office where if remote work will become a a core part of our daily life. And so why not move to a DC if you earn a New York living and work remotely from there or any other neighboring city where you can still have some of the luxuries in any big city, but pay far less for a lot more. And so I think first time buyers, they're all diving headfirst into this market and creating the competitiveness that we're seeing. Part of what's so bizarre about the real estate market right now is that high-income buyers are suddenly flooding rural and suburban settings. They can splash out on cheap land and get into bidding wars with other urban expats. It won't last forever, though. And according to Saudi, neither will their exponentially higher incomes. I do think that that will be corrected. I highly doubt that incomes are going to hold steady as people go to like rural and suburban areas. Their salaries are going to get adjusted because cost of living will adjust. And I think that is probably there is, you know, some downside from that axis. But I think net net, I think society will do better. And I think we as people will generally do better and be happier as we optimize for what we kind of really need instead of being forced into situations that we don't really want. I'll say it was under $500,000. I'll put it that way. And again, it was a 15-acre farm, 2,500-square-foot house with a barn and stable in perfect condition. Um, And I just, tell me, I mean, I don't know what on earth could you possibly get for that in New York City. Tarek's not wrong. The cheapest apartments in New York are more expensive than most houses elsewhere. But with all the New Yorkers flocking upstate, towns like Phoenicia and Margaretville are getting bombarded by cosmopolitan tastes and demands. Rather than adapt to the quieter regional pace that drove them there, many urbanites are making their new homes more like their old ones. People aren't going to love to hear this, but yeah, you see like a lot of 
Brooklyn, <laughs> in a lot of these towns. And you're going to start seeing these cafes and restaurants opening up in my town. There's two in particular that, you know, two people from Brooklyn came up and, and opened up a great cafe and great restaurant. For Dale, Portland wasn't a huge leap from San Francisco. He already had friends there, and many friends have followed. For that reason, he doesn't feel like he's missing out on his old life. I don't have FOMO because the San Francisco that I knew has really dissipated. It doesn't feel like I'm missing out on something because what it was was no longer there. Um, But San Francisco was an important part of my life from 2010 to 2020, and I I will recall it fondly for that decade. Some could say that Dale and Tark and every relatively young person that's left the city are just settling down. After all, it's not unusual for families to leave behind metropolitan lives for more space, good schools, and less stress. For many, the pandemic has only accelerated the choices they would have made eventually. But it's also created a space to reevaluate what kind of life you want. Some people live in cities because they love the fast pace, the creative inspiration, the accessibility, the pleasure of feeling invisible in a crowd. Other people live there because it's close to work or because it feels integral to their industry to be at the center of it all. What the pandemic has provided, if you have the money, is an opening to choose for yourself. You know, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, so it actually reminds me a lot of my childhood. And I remember, couldn't wait to get out of Tennessee. And when I got to New York, I was like, this is heaven on earth. New York was heaven. The stimulation, the creative energy, people that think like you, you can find no matter where they are and what have you. And sure enough, right, as history repeats itself, you start getting close to 40, you get a family, you start start reminiscing about, you know, Northeast Tennessee, well, me in my case. And then here I am, you know, on a farm in Bovina. Lots of people stayed in their respective cities during the pandemic. Some because they had no other option and some because they didn't want another option. Some people might look at it and just be disgusted by it, which is like, oh, that person's just never happy. You know, oh, wherever they are, they're going to get this house upstate and then they're going to want to come back because that is a reality, I think, for a lot. But I know that over time, the stimulation and the creative energy of New York is going to be too hard to stay away from. Like the second you come back to your neighborhood after being away for a couple of weeks, you do look at it with greater longing and appreciation for your neighbors and for the stores and restaurants that have been there for years, many of which unfortunately now are not there. Having a place upstate and spending time there gives me much greater appreciation for New York. Will it, will it make me buy a place here? No. If one day I'm not priced out of it, I'll just remain psychologically priced out of it. For people who live in cities with the mystique, it's hard to admit that it's not what you want anymore. There's a phrase you might have heard specific to New Yorkers. It's New York or nowhere. The average person changes over time and wants different things. And as great as New York or San Francisco or Miami is, there's a lot of nowhere to explore. I think a lot of what has driven my decisions over the course of the last couple of years has been, wow, I've actually come to a place where I understand what enough is and I'm not constantly chasing and striving. And from that vantage point, I can make decisions that allow me to lead a more flexible and more fulfilled life. The pandemic has opened pathways to homeownership for many who couldn't afford it before, thanks to low interest rates, or just the widened radius in which people can now live and still work. Kirsten sold a lot of homes, and it's hard to ignore the limitations that befall certain generations. Because 
the job market continues to seem to become more and more contract-based, more and more freelance, more and more startups. As a whole, I think it's not fair to group millennials either, but from what I can see, the only millennials that are buying from me right now would be people who are getting help from their parents or people who, for better or for worse of the term, got real jobs and stuck it out working 80-hour weeks for the last five years. Sadi knows firsthand the advantages afforded to homeowners, especially in the U.S. Because of his many rental properties, he's given tax breaks and lots of infrastructure for financing all those homes. And we provide a lot of this infrastructure because the United States has decided from a policy standpoint, either accidentally or intentionally, that you know, we really encourage homeownership. And I think that's been like a really powerful effect on not just wealth generation for Americans, but also actually of the value system of society itself. The risk model for a homeowner is always lower than that of a renter. Owning property is vital to growing wealth which would ideally be passed from generation to generation. It's an advantage that historically shut out groups based on race, gender, religion, sexual orientation. Any difference, really, that might alarm the neighbors. And you see significant deltas in wealth creation and more importantly, wealth preservation across generations when a particular ethnic class or a particular part of society doesn't have access to it. They often start falling behind very, very quickly. The data on pandemic home buyers is mixed, and there's a good chance the financial strain brought on by this health crisis will only exacerbate class divides. Only time will tell. But based on the numbers, black millennials became homeowners at a higher rate in 2020 than in previous years. And as the pandemic continues, that number might continue to grow. Blal and I are winding down in DC with our last house of the day. Blal leads me into an echoey kitchen, we stand off to the side and avoid the realtor's glances as he talks to other interested buyers. So, Bilal, this is house number three. And I know my opinion on this house. This is a pretty cool house. How are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, Mesh, the, earlier on we were talking about having seen two dozen houses over the last few weeks. And uh, this is the first one I've seen that... Yeah, ticks the boxes on pretty much everything. It has the spillover space. It has the rooms. There's a two-car garage. We could grow as a family in this house. The price is excellent. Uh, yeah, I think this is looking like one that we would bid on. It seems like you and the 10 other people in this house right now. <laughs> that's right, exactly. This will be something that's very competitive for sure. Okay, let's find out. Blal calls his realtor and puts in his bid, just like that. We say our goodbyes, and he promises to keep me updated. Now, we wait. Hey, a week later, Hello. I call Bilal. He's I'm at the good, airport good. heading uh, back to Abu Dhabi. So that was last Sunday, and look, things moved very quickly after that. Now, one thing that I learned sort of half an hour before we put in the bid was that oftentimes people actually write letters to the seller. That's tough because, you know, I'm writing a letter blind, but going through the house... There are some clues that you pick up about the family, right? It was very clear that this was a very tight-knit family. This was a family that had traveled and had taken great care in making sure that the home looked beautiful and that, uh, you know, that this was also a tall family, right? I mean, I'm six foot six, my wife is 5'10". So we put the offer in at 12. Uh, it all moves very quickly, and I got a call from my realtor at around 6 p.m. 
Bilal's offer was one of the final two bids. They both had the same cap, and his realtor wanted to know if they would go higher to lock in the deal. And of course, at that point, you do the most sensible thing you can, which is call your partner. So I got off the phone, called my wife, and uh, she didn't pick up. The uh, time difference meant that it was 3 a.m. for her, so she was asleep. Bilal did the next best thing. He called his in-laws. They'd been part of the house hunt and advised him to agree to a $10,000 increase. There wasn't much time, and the realtor needed an answer. So that's what we went ahead with, and she said she would then call me back later on in the evening with the final decision from the owners. And then? I got a call an hour later telling me, congratulations, I am now a homeowner in Washington, D.C. What a feeling. Soon, Bilal will begin the arduous process of planning an international move. He and his wife will have to find a new school for their daughter and reacquaint themselves with the neighborhood. They'll set up home offices in their new spillover space and take advantage of the yard they'd marked as non-negotiable. Ideally, they'll set up a spare bedroom so I can visit whenever I want. And hopefully, in their new house, they'll finally be home. I mean, I can tell you now, going through the motions and process of all the down payments and signing of contract, usually I would have anticipated that that would sort of dim my enthusiasm once you start getting into the weeds. But to be quite honest, with each passing day, I'm more and more excited about this house. And so I'm, I'm elated. I'm optimistic about San Francisco in the medium to, to long term. I think the work that Scott Weiner is doing at the state level to pass housing bills are already leading to projects being approved that wouldn't have otherwise. And over the next three to five years, if there's actually a significant amount of housing stock that comes online, um, I can see a world in which San Francisco becomes more livable again. Dale means a lot when he says livable. The unaffordability of cities is a widely acknowledged problem that no one takes responsibility for. It's possible that this voluntary evacuation of cities will force government officials to address the housing issues that made urban life so unappealing in a pandemic. More green space, more affordable units, more rent regulation. Maybe this can be a push to make our cities better than before. I do think that people are going to wake up and wonder why they left New York City, because I do believe in New York City, and I do think it's really fun to be here, and there's an energy here that you don't get anywhere else. Just the bad times are never that long, and I think that buyers now, the biggest risk is this idea that you're going to keep getting a better deal and more deals are going to keep coming. And so you can't just expect that, well, that was a good deal, but there'll be another great deal. Because all of a sudden you'll wake up and the market will have risen again and then it's over. Our regular haunts have been blocked off by plexiglass, creating a frame around the spaces we used to occupy. From six feet away, we say hi to friends and forget the close-up details of their faces. In this pandemic, we're finding ourselves and figuring out what's important. And we're making moves to defy the hushed stillness. All we can do is move forward. When the future's obscured by fog, when nothing feels normal, when we feel so lost, we just want to go home. Thank you to Kirsten Jordan, Sadi Khan, Bilal Baloch, Dale Stevens, and Tarek Pertu for sharing your stories with us. Want to learn more about the topics we cover? Become a Talk Money member today. 
Sign up at thetalkmoney.com slash membership to get access to our comprehensive educational guides, including our latest guide on home buying, and hear full interviews from all our episodes this season. That link again is thetalkmoney.com slash membership and use the code podcast for a 20% discount. This episode was written and produced by Olivia Briley. Our mix engineer is Valentino Rivera with additional help from Eduardo Perez. This episode featured music by Blue Dot Sessions. We appreciate you sharing this with your friends and of course, subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.